as we continue our study through Genesis, we see this ongoing thread of sin and the question of whether God's promise will be fulfilled, that he's going to send someone to deal with that sin. And uh, even in David's life, hundreds of years later, we have uh, in Psalm 51 a record of his repentance after he had sinned greatly, that he committed adultery, arranged the murder of uh, the woman's husband, and did not follow God. And, and yet in his re repentance, he turned away from that sin. He asked God not to uh, let that undermine the testimony of God's name or the work that God was doing in his people Israel. And I think as we go through our passage this morning, we see again that that sin is present uh, even after times of God's judgment and cleansing. We saw the flood last week. And then in these next chapters, once again, sin rears its ugly head and we see again the need for Christ and the work that he has done. Before we get to chapter 11, uh, let me ask you this. Have you ever had someone who is in charge of you, parent, teacher, some other person who has authority in your life, tell you to do something and you said, no, I'm not going to do it? I'm sure that's not the case for, for any of us. Constantly, just maybe a few times a day, right? How did that go for you? If the authority does what they're supposed to do, hopefully you realize that saying no to someone who is in charge of you does not um, usually go well. When they're a right authority and, and are telling you to do something that's right, we have a responsibility to obey. And in chapter 11, which we're going to get to in just a moment, God brings judgment on the people of the world because they refused to obey the command, the commission that he had given them uh, several chapters previously, what we looked at last week with Noah and his family. And the result of their rebellion is that they are scattered by God. But before we get there, we have chapter 10. And we'd be tempted to skip over chapter 10 because it's a long list of names. And we say, well, what are we supposed to do with this? In this chapter we see an explanation, a reminder of several things. One is that the only people who were preserved alive from the flood is Noah, his wife, his three sons, and their wives. And so this, some call it a table of nations, recounts the fact that all of the nations in the present world are descendants of that one family, Noah and his three sons. And their names were obviously Shem, Ham, and Japheth. And it says in verse 1, sons were born to them after the flood. And it starts out in verses 2 through 5 and outlines the sons of Japheth, Gomer, Magog, Medai, Javan, Tubal, Meshach, and Tiras, Ashkenaz, Ripheth, and Togarma, Elisha, and Tarshish, Kittim, and Dodanim. From these, the coastlands of the nations were separated into their lands, every one according to his language, according to their families, into their nations. This raises a question for us, because in our scripture reading, in verse 1 of chapter 11, it says their whole earth used the same language and the same words. So why in chapter 10, which comes before chapter 11, does it say they were separated according to their language and their families and their nations? And the answer is this. Chapter 11 is going to go back and explain 
how all of these nations and families came to be divided from one another. Because starting out, they're one people. They speak one language. They are, to some extent, united in one purpose. We see Noah's son, Japheth, and his descendants are some of the seafaring peoples who will uh, later be along the coastland. We come to the sons of Ham, Cush, Mizraim, Put, and Canaan, and we see a listing of those sons. Verse 8 stands out, Cush became the father of Nimrod, he became a mighty one on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord, therefore it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord. The beginning of his kingdom was Babel and Erech and Akkad and Kalna in the land of Shinar. From that land he went forth into Assyria and built Nineveh and Rehobothir and Kala and Resin between Nineveh and Kala, that is, the great city. So we pause for a moment and we say, why is this important that it's listed here? Well, secular um, professors people who write books, would tell us that the nations originated over a long process of evolution and from very primitive to more advanced. This testifies that those nations that are seen to be some of the very early nations, the great nations of Babylon and the kingdom of the Akkadians and so forth, these are descendants of Noah, specifically of his son Ham, they are those who are characterized from even a very early time, at least in the person of Nimrod, as being those who are mighty in potentially war. The phrase that's there, sometimes we think it might be like hunting animals, but in other places in Scripture that phrase is used to, of those who hunt people in battle. And so from a very early time, we see sort of a preview or an anticipation of the character of these kingdoms. They are later known for being great and cruel kingdoms who succeed and find their uh, position among the nations of the world through sinful acts of oppression and of cruelty. Even in the very early chapters of the Bible, we see anticipation of all these things that are going to happen later. They are not myths. They're not accidents. They're not results of long processes of time. They are all the descendants of one family. They are those who are establishing cities and building cultures and all these sorts of things at a very early point in human history. And so when you go and you read something about the history of the world, keep that in mind. Where did all of the people on the earth in the present day come from? From one family, the family of Noah, that survived the flood through God's protection. Where did all the nations that exist come from? from his three sons. And that's what this chapter is laying out for us. Uh, verse 15, Canaan becomes the father of Sidon, Heth, the Jebusite, Amorite, Girgashite, Hivite, Archite, Sidonite, Arvidite, Zimorite, Hamathite, and afterward the families of the Canaanite were spread abroad. The territory of the Canaanite extended from Sidon as you go toward Gerar, as far as Gaza, as you go through Sodom and Gomorrah, and Adma and Zeboim, as far as Lasha. Why is this being laid out? Because there's an anticipation that in the judgment, the curse that Noah spoke on Canaan and his descendants for his sinful act of dishonoring his father in the previous chapters, there is an anticipation that those people, both in terms of that curse and in terms of their individual choices, are be going to become people who are known for their immorality and their cruelty and their general wickedness and 
there is an anticipation that here's the land that they are in. And in the next few chapters, we're going to see that God's purpose is to give Abraham a certain land. And that land is going to correspond to the land that's described here that belongs to the Canaanites, but that God is going to take away from the Canaanites and give to his people Israel in fulfillment of all these things we've seen in these previous chapters. We come down now to verse 21, also to Shem, the father of all the children of Eber, the older brother of Japheth, children were born. The sons of Shem were Elam and Asher and Arphaxad and Lud and Aram. The sons of Aram were Uz and Hol and Gether and Mash. Arphaxad became the father of Shelah, Shelah the father of Eber. Two sons were born to Eber. The name of the one was Peleg, for in his days the earth was divided, and his brother's name was Joktan. Joktan became the father of Almadad, Sheleph, Hazar, Meveth, and Jera, and Hadram, and Ozel, and Dikla, and Obal, and Abimael, and Sheba, and Ophir, and Havilah, and Jobab. All of these were the sons of Joktan. Their settlement ascended from Mesha toward Sefer, the hill country of the east. These are the sons of Shem, according to their families, according to their languages, by their lands, according to their nations. These are the families of the sons of Noah, according to their genealogies, by their nations. And out of these, the nations were separated on the earth after the flood. Now that's going to lead us to chapter 11. How were these nations separated? And chapter 11 is going to come, verses 1 through 9 is an interlude between the laying out of all of these nations and a resuming of the genealogy in chapter 11 and verse 10 that's going to lead us up to the person of Abram. And so we see... Genesis chapter 5, there's a genealogy. Chapter 10, there's a summary of the nations. Chapter 11, there's another genealogy. And we see the progression from Adam all the way to Abram. And we see God's work in and among all of these peoples in the course of this period of history. So we come now to chapter 11. And in chapter 11, we see this simple statement. The whole earth used the same language and the same words. Well, what does that mean? It means they didn't have to study in school other languages. It means there was no possibility of you walking up to someone else and not being able to understand them, either because they had an accent or a dialect or spoke a completely different language. One people, one language. Think of the possibilities. Think of how often issues in communication create problems in our world today. If all of those were suddenly taken away, think of what could be done by people united by one language. What is their purpose? Well, verse 2, they journeyed east, and they found a plain in the land of Shinar, and they settled there. We saw that mentioned in chapter 10, uh, particularly uh, in connection with Nimrod, the kingdom of Babel, and Acadia, and so forth. They settle there, and what is it that they decide to do? Let us make bricks, and they use brick for stone, and they use tar for mortar. So they're in a dry area. They may not have much access to stone and the other components that they need to make mortar, but they have access to tar, and they have access to clay, and so they make bricks, and they make tar, and they say, we're going to build a structure. Verse 4, Come, let us build for ourselves a city, and a tower whose top will reach into heaven, and let us make for ourselves a name, otherwise we'll be scattered abroad over the face of the whole earth. There's this sense that here are people united in opposition to God and saying, we can potentially 
overcome the command that God has given on us to be fruitful, multiply, and spread out and fill the earth if we can stick together, build something that will bring the recognition of the whole earth and keep us all united, and set ourselves in opposition to God and to His purposes. The irony of this is what has just recently taken place. Genesis 6, it describes that the, the thoughts of every man's heart, their actions, their words, was only evil continually. God sends the flood as punishment, as judgment on that sin. And now from the people that have been spared that judgment, we see the very same kinds of sin. Perhaps not to the same degree. It's not described with the same sort of, of just... Uh, Extravagance, not the right word, the same sort of emphatic language that, that everything that they thought and did was evil continually, but they're in opposition to God's will. They're committing sin. They are united against God, which connects back to Genesis 3. God had given a command to Adam and Eve, don't eat from that tree. The serpent comes along and says, none of the bad things God says are going to happen. In fact, here's a good thing that will happen. And they disobey God. Genesis 6, everyone's disobeying God. Genesis chapter 11, they've united again to disobey God. God has given them a command. Where does he give them that command? We see at the beginning of Genesis chapter 9, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, Be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. We say, well, where does it say that they're going to have to uh, scatter out. Well, the reality is if the earth is filled, if population becomes too dense in one spot, they're going to have to spread out. Uh, chapter 9 and verse 7 says, be fruitful and multiply, populate the earth abundantly, and multiply in it. Why was this necessary? Because there's eight people left in the earth. So they're going to have to have children, and grandchildren, and great-grandchildren, and so on and so forth, and they are going to have to replenish the earth that has been wiped out in this severe expression of God's judgment against sin. But they don't want to do what God has told them to do. They want to stay in one spot. They want to unite themselves against God. They think, even as Satan seemed to have thought before them, we can oppose God's will. We can exalt ourselves, and we can be in a position to tell God, no. It's fascinating in light of the judgment that God carries out on them in the next few verses that their specific goal was to make a name for themselves. They thought that if they could be united together, that if they could keep the attention of the people around them, be well known enough that they could overcome God's purpose for them, and we're going to see at the end of the, this section that the very name that they were seeking to make for themselves might have been something that people couldn't even say by the end of this section. Verse 5 is interesting. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the sons of men had built. Why does the author phrase it in this way? It's not as though God was, was nearsighted, that he had to come down low to see exactly what was going on. He's connecting it with earlier examples of God's judgment. Same thing happened in Genesis chapter 3. God came down to look at Adam and Eve. 
God came down to look at the earth in Genesis chapter 6 and see that man's heart was wicked. God comes down here to observe the Tower of Babel and say, here is what is going on. Verse 6, we also see a parallel between the judgment that God puts on Adam and Eve. He says, they've eaten of the tree of life, or the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Let's do this thing so that they do not eat of the tree of life and so live forever. Similar, parallel language here. They are one people and they have one language. This is what they began to do, and now nothing which they purposed will be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they will not understand one another's speech. What's that going to do for their building project? It's going to bring it to a screeching halt. You can't organize a huge construction project when no one understands what anyone else is saying. And God is, by this act of judgment, both going to carry out what it was that he wanted them to do in the first place, and he's going to show the futility of opposing God's purpose and plan. We saw that in the, the song that we sang from Psalm chapter 2. Sometimes there have been those, actually repeatedly throughout history, there have been those who have opposed God and thought that they can go their own way and do their own thing, and particularly in opposition against God and His Son Jesus Christ, that they can prevail. And as I've spoken to you before, that's kind of like if a colony of ants that was crawling across the floor said that they're going to tear this whole building down. It's foolishness. It's weak. It's an impossibility for them to do so um, in an instant when those God specifically, who is so much greater, looks down at them and sees their schemes and as the, the psalm says, laughs or ridicules that sort of idea that they can succeed in their opposition. Same sort of thing is happening here in this passage. We're going to build a tower. We're going to reach heaven. Could they do that? They couldn't reach heaven. God still had to come down to their tower. They couldn't reach heaven. They're talking about a physical tower. Sometimes... In the present day, people seek to reach God by their own efforts in more of a figurative sense. You know, God's up there, but I can reach Him if I am a good enough person, if I pray enough prayers, if I do enough things, if I fill in the blank. We can't reach up to God. God still has to come down. And that's what he did in the person of Jesus Christ. He said, you can't be good enough to reach to me. You can't deal with the sin that characterizes your heart and life. You need me in the person of Christ to humble himself, take a human nature, die for sin, and pay the price that you could never take care of. And so just like the people in this chapter, in our rebellion and in our pride, sometimes we think we can reach God on our own. We can't do it, and God has already come low in the person of Christ, brought himself down to die and to pay for sins. So the question is, 
Are we still trying to build our way to God, figuratively speaking, or are we trusting in Christ who said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to God except through me. We can't, like the people in this chapter, replace God or rebel against God or overcome God. We cannot, like people often try to do today, reach God by our own efforts and our own attempts. Or else we face God's judgment. Verse 8 says this, The Lord scattered them abroad from there over the face of the whole earth, and they stopped building the city. Verse 9, Therefore its name was called Babel, because there the Lord confused the language of the whole earth, and from there the Lord scattered them abroad over the face of the whole earth. What was the judgment that the people here faced? Your efforts will fail. You will fulfill the thing that God had commanded you to do in the first place. What is the judgment that falls on those who seek to reach God or oppose God by their own strength? Jesus said it in the end of John 3 this way, the one who has not believed in Jesus Christ is condemned already because he hasn't believed in the one that God has sent. But we're more familiar with the verse early in the chapter, right? God loved the world in this way that he sent his only son that whoever believes in him would not perish but have eternal life. God carried out judgment on the pride of these people in the ancient world, scattered them, caused them to fulfill the thing that he had commissioned Noah and his sons to do back in chapter 9. God will oppose our pride if we seek to behave as they did. And as it says in another passage, it's foolish to try to fight against God. So, are we going to be like these people who in their pride opposed God's purpose and will, thought that they could do it their own way, thought that they could be greater than God or that they didn't need God? Or are we going to humbly submit to the fact that we are not God, we cannot reach God on our own, We need God to have come down to us, not in judgment, but in compassion in the person of Christ. Remember their fear in verse 4. We will be scattered if we don't do this. What happened anyway in verses 8 and 9? They were scattered. Remember their goal. We will make a name for ourselves. And then... Verse 7 and verse 8, they would not understand one another's speech. The Lord confused the language of the whole earth. That name that they wanted to have, they're at a point where not everyone can even speak it anymore. That thing that they thought would bring them success, failed. Sometimes we think, well, God did the flood and then he doesn't care about sin anymore. But this is a reminder, just a couple of chapters later, God still takes sin seriously, God still expects obedience, and God has the power to carry out his plan despite the best efforts and the schemes of thousands upon thousands of human beings. 
And so in this passage, we see the greatness of God, the fact that He fulfills His Word, the foolishness of coming up with our own schemes in opposition to God's will, and most importantly, the fact that even though sin had just been judged terribly in the flood, it was still present in the hearts and minds of people. It's still present in hearts and minds today. And the only solution was not to come up with our own solution, but to look to God's provision. And then we come now to this genealogy at the end of chapter 11. And we pick up with a specific focus on the family of Shem. Chapter 10 was a broad look at the family of Shem. Here at the end of chapter 11, it's a specific look at the uh, ancestors of Abram. Shem was 100 years old and became the father of Arpachsad two years after the flood. He lived 500 years after he became the father of Arpachsad and he had other sons and daughters. He lived 35 years and became the father of Shelah, and then he lived 403 years after he became the father of Shelah and had other sons and daughters. She lived 30 years and became the father of Eber. And she lived 403 years after he became the father of Eber and had other sons and daughters. Eber lived 34 years and became the father of Peleg. And Eber lived 430 years after he became the father of Peleg and had other sons and daughters. Peleg lived 30 years and became the father of Ru. And Peleg lived 209 years after he became the father of Ru and had other sons and daughters. Ru lived 32 years and became the father of Sarag. And Ru lived 207 years after he became the father of Sarag and had other sons and daughters. Sarag lived 30 years and became the father of Nahor. And Sarag lived 200 years after he became the father of Nahor and he had other sons and daughters. Nahor lived 29 years and became the father of Terah. And Nahor lived 119 years after he became the father of Terah and he had other sons and daughters. Terah lived 70 years and became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran, and Haran became the father of Lot. Haran died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldeans. Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, and the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Iscah. Sarai was barren. She had no child. Terah took Abram his son, and Lot the son of Haran his grandson, and Sarai his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. There are some interesting things to note about this genealogy as compared to the one in Genesis chapter 5. For one, the lifespan is much shorter. It starts out with these who are living Shem, 600 years. Arphaxed, 435. Terah lives only 205 years at the end of the chapter. We see a decrease in the lifespan of people as some of the ongoing effects after the flood, after God's curse on mankind, after the events of what we saw in Genesis chapter 6. We see a progression, a narrowing of the focus from broadly the, all the descendants of Noah in chapter 10 to specifically to the descendants of Shem, and even a narrowing from there of the focus to specifically those that would lead to Abram. 
we see a reminder of the phrase, and he died, a few times toward the end of the chapter, which was repeated so many times in chapter 5. We see in verse 30 the expectation that the line is about to end. Sarai is barren and has no child. And so this section serves as a transition. The, the chapter 10, here's all of Abram's descendants, these nations that we see in the world today. They are nations which were described in Genesis chapter 10. These nations opposed God and failed. God scattered them across the whole earth. And now the focus turns from broadly all of the nations of the known world at that time to one family, one family line, leading to a specific person, Abram. And we'll pick up his story there next week, but as we, as we close out looking at this section, what should we remember? We should remember that God keeps his word. We should remember that even in an instance where we think that sin would have been taken care of and done with, that it persists, that it continues, even from some of the very people through whom we would expect uh, eventually this promise that God had made in Genesis 3.15 would be fulfilled. They're all still sinners, and the Deliverer has not yet come. They seek to oppose God in pride, and God casts them low. They seek to reach God, and God has to bend down to bring judgment upon them. The Deliverer has not yet come. Sin is still present in the world. From where is He going to come? We see hints that it's being focused now to the family of Abraham and eventually to the people of Israel. And we'll see further developments until we come down to the Gospels and see that deliverance will come in the person of Christ. But we're not there yet. We're still in this spot where people are bound in sin, living in rebellion, seemingly without hope. We stand in a place where we can look back and see all the things that led to where we are now. But they were in a place where, what hope did they have? Continuing to wait for God's deliverer. I don't think everyone participated in the rebellion at the Tower of Babel. But we all still feel the effects of God's judgment in that moment, right? And so the deliverer had not yet come, but he was coming. God scattered those who rebelled against him. Let's pray. Lord, these genealogies and accounts of ancient events seem very far away from where we live today. Lord, help us to see that we can demonstrate the same sort of pride that these people demonstrated. Lord, I trust that for the majority of us here this morning that through your grace and mercy we have turned from that pride and in humility recognize that we can't reach you and that you have made a provision and that we need to trust in Christ and only then can we be rightly related with you, not seeking to replace you, not seeking to rebel against you, but your people under your authority. Lord, if there's anyone here this morning who doesn't yet know you as their God and as their Savior, we pray that you would help them to see 
from the way that you responded to the rebellion of these people in Genesis 11, that we can't make our own way to you, we can't make our own way in opposition to you, that we need to instead trust in you. That these things are not myths and legends and made-up stories, but we see connection points between these chapters and what we will see in the rest of Scripture, that these things anticipate your work throughout history and the plan that you are carrying out, and the fact that none of it comes as a surprise to you, but is part of your purpose that you are carrying out in the world. Lord, we pray that these stories from long ago we would see as real, that we would see how we can learn and apply them to our lives. Lord, we pray that you would help us to trust and to follow in you, not to oppose you in pride, but to humbly submit to you as your people. We pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.